0: This morning we are in Psalm 102. Turn there in your Bibles, it's right in the middle. If you're new to the Bible, the big number is what we call the chapter. Uh, We call this a psalm, it's a song. The little numbers are the verses. Psalm 102. A prayer of one afflicted when he is faint and pours out his complaint before the Lord. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me. Answer me speedily in the day when I call. For my days pass away like smoke and my bones burn like a furnace. My heart is struck down like grass and has withered. I forget to eat my bread. Because of my loud groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. I'm like a desert owl of the wilderness like an owl of the waste places. I lie awake. I'm like a lonely sparrow on the housetop. All the day my enemies taunt me. Those who deride me use my name for a curse. For I eat ashes like bread, mingle tears with my drink because of your indignation and anger. For you have taken me up and thrown me down. My days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. and does not despise their prayer. Let this be recorded for a generation to come, so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord, that He looked down from His holy height. From heaven the Lord looked at the earth to hear the groans of the prisoners, to set free those who were doomed to die, that they may declare in Zion the name of the Lord, and in Jerusalem His praise, when peoples gather together and kingdoms to worship the Lord. He has broken my strength in mid-course. He has shortened my days. Oh my God, I say, take me not away in the midst of my days, you whose years endure throughout all generations. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same. And your years have no end. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you once again for speaking to us clearly in your word so that we might know you and find you. Draw our hearts and our minds to you this morning through this precious psalm. Most of all, help us to see your son Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. I always like texts like this one because they are so clearly relevant to us that I don't have to stress out about how to find an introduction for it to make you want to pay attention to what I'm about to say. Its own heading says that it's the prayer of one afflicted when he's faint and he pours out his complaint before the Lord. Are you suffering? Do you have something to complain about? This passage is for you. Parents often tell their children to stop complaining. They find it irritating. Adults find it irritating when other people are always complaining, talking about what's wrong with their lives. But what's amazing about this psalm and the many, many others like it is that it shows us that God wants us to complain to Him. He invites us to do so. Not just because He wants us to vent, Not just because nobody else wants to listen to us. Not just because he wants to give us an excuse to blow off steam. But because God actually wants us to know who he is. He wants to show us what he's like. He wants to show us what he's going to do in the midst of all of our suffering. He says, come to me and complain. The problem is not that we complain to God. The problem is that we don't do it at all. We don't think he cares. We don't think it matters. But the psalm is not just a complaint about something like getting cut off in traffic We're getting an A minus, although we can and we should certainly complain to God about even those small things. We're going to quickly see that whoever wrote this is writing it in a situation of abysmal depression. But it's not just describing somebody's own personal anguish, even though it certainly applies there and God wants us to come to him in the midst of it. The psalm also is a lament about the shameful state of God's people, about the humiliation and the weakness of the church. The psalm helps us learn how to complain and pray to God about our own misery, but it's also here to help us see that we should be lamenting the weakness and the struggles of the wider community of Jesus. But most of all, whether we're talking about personal or corporate misery, the psalm is most of all reminding us about and is rooting us in the character and the purposes of God so that we might have real hope in the midst of horrific suffering. In verses 1 and 2, the author cuts straight to the chase. He cries out to the Lord five times. He begs God to respond in a respectful way, but he actually is commanding God five times. He says, Hear my prayer. Let my cry come to you. Don't hide your face. Turn your ear to me. Answer me quickly. I mean, you can hear it's like a little kid. He's so demanding. He's saying, God, listen to me. Don't be silent. Don't just sit there and do nothing. He says, let my cry come to you. He doesn't mean when he says that, he's not just sheepishly asking for a bit of advice or a tiny bit of help. This word here means a shout for help. It's what a child does when they're hurt or when they're terrified or when they're drowning. The same word gets used at the very beginning of the book of Exodus where we're told that God hears the cry for rescue coming up to heaven from the miserable Israelite slaves. It's that kind of cry that this psalm is teaching us to lift up to God. And so the first point for us today is an obvious one, but it's really important. We should cry out to God. So often, crying out to God in prayer is one of the last things that we think to do when we're suffering. We look to money or vacations or doctors or alcohol or scrolling on our phones mindlessly to deal with our pain and our grief. Maybe we think instead that God doesn't care. Maybe we think He's uninterested. Maybe He's mad at us. Or maybe He just can't do anything about it, so what's the point? But even when we're in the pit of depression and anxiety... The psalm is showing us that we should cry out to the Lord. It's not the only thing we should do, but it's the most important thing we should do. And if nothing else, you can let this psalm be your own prayer. You don't even have to come up with your own words. That's what's so beautiful about the psalms. You just go through, I like to do this, you go through line by line and you just take them, you make them your own prayer. You don't even have to try to come up with something to say to God. In verses 3 to 11, the author gives us the reason that he's crying out to God like this. He's lamenting his miserable situation. You can see first in verses 3 to 5, he's telling God about physical misery. Some of you have been so depressed that you know exactly what he's talking about. He says that his days are passing away like smoke. They're drifting along with nothing solid about them. He says that his his bones are burning like a furnace. He's racked with pain and distress. In verse 4, he says that his heart, which is a way of saying the very center of who you are, says his heart is like grass that's been mown down and now it's withering away. So he's saying it's like I've been cut off from every source of life and cast aside. Every day is another kind of death. He's so despondent that he cannot even bring himself to eat. He says, I forget to eat my bread. Many of you have been there before. And then in verse 5 he says, he's constantly moaning, he's wasting away to skin and bones. His mind and his heart are in such a dark place that he's losing a lot of weight. He's something like a corpse, although one that's still just barely alive. But then in verse 6 he shifts from describing his physical misery to God To now lamenting his relational misery. His relational misery. He says he's like a desert owl of the wilderness. The idea with describing himself as an owl is that he's solitary, he's isolated, he's up all night. He has no companions, no one with him to help him or talk to him or listen to him. Like an owl, like a bird of prey, he's just hanging around the dead. In verse 7, he bemoans his lack of sleep. And he says he's like a lonely sparrow on the rooftop. And again, the idea is that he's far away from other people. He's on his own. He's out of community. But in verse 8, it gets even worse. It's not just that he doesn't have anybody around to help him or to relate to him. That's bad enough. But it's also that those that are around him are mocking him. All the day, my enemies taunt me. Those who deride me use my name for a curse. He's the butt of everybody's jokes. He's so pathetic that they've turned his name into a curse word. He's like the kid on the playground whose shabby clothing and lanky proportions are attracting bullies like vultures circling a corpse. In verses 9 to 11, He reiterates everything. He reiterates his misery. He says, I'm eating ashes like bread. I think the idea there is that he's so miserable, he's so humiliated that he's just laid out on the ground. He can't even get up. He says, I'm mingling my tears with my drink. He can't stop crying. He says, my days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. The idea here is going to come back later. It's emphasizing the frailty of and the brevity of his life, his total lack of control over his circumstances, even the smallest things. And so he's grieving how quickly he changes, how quickly he sees himself passing away, making no impact on anything around him. No one even cares. But then in verse 10, he articulates the root of all his misery. He says, It's because of your indignation and anger, for you've taken me up, and thrown me down. He says his suffering is ultimately from God. It's because of God's anger with his sinfulness. Now imagine the difference between knocking over a Lego set off a dresser versus picking it up and throwing it down. The psalmist is saying that my suffering is like God doing the latter. He took me up and he chucked me down as hard as he could. That's what it feels like. We saw something similar a couple weeks ago when we were looking at Psalm 90 about how our lives are short and fragile because we are all part of the sinful human family that's now under God's deathly curse. There's a sense in which all of our suffering is because of God's righteous judgment upon us and upon humanity and upon our world. But like we said a couple of weeks ago, this is really important, like we said a couple of weeks ago, this does not necessarily mean that every instance of suffering is a specific punishment for some specific sin. We also said back then, a couple weeks ago, that for the Christian, we're actually no longer being punished at all. Because Jesus himself bore all the punishment for all of our sinfulness on the cross. Instead, we heard and learned that for the Christian, all suffering has now been transformed from punishment into the loving correction and discipline and guidance of a heavenly Father who knows what's best for you. God works through our suffering. He uses it to make us more and more like Jesus, to make us more holy, more patient, more joyful, more trusting. So here the psalmist is lamenting his miserable situation with all of its various facets, physical and relational. And then he understands, he expresses that it's ultimately a result of God's curse on humanity. And so with this example in front of us, God is now also inviting us to complain and grieve and pray in the same kinds of ways. But the psalm goes a lot farther than merely complaining. It moves on to hope. And that hope is not just hoping for the best, wishing that things will be better, uh, believing the best somehow. This hope is actually rooted in something solid. It's rooted in God's own character. Look at verse 12. Look down at verse 12. The author's just been complaining about his own vaporous frailty. He says his life is drifting away like smoke on the wind. It's withering away like the grass clippings in my trash can. But now there's this huge emphatic shift. He's been complaining about what he's like and how sad it all is. But now he says, you, God, are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations. And so you see this massive contrast between what he's like and what God's like. He says, I'm frail. I'm out of control. But you are sitting on the throne of the universe forever and ever. You're ruling over everything with perfect wisdom and power. He says, I'm brief and dispensable and quickly forgotten. But you are remembered through every generation. God is the main character of history. He's the highlight of heaven. He's the north star of eternity. There will never be a generation of humans when countless people are not amazed about who God is and what He's been up to. God is remembered forever. And it's this mighty God who will turn to His miserable people in mercy. Look at verse 13 you will arise and have pity on Zion. It's time to favor her. Her appointed time has come. And so like a king ruling over his domain, we've heard that God is seated on his throne forever. But now, like a king jumping up for battle, we also hear that God's going to get up. God will rise And what is he going to do? He's going to dump out his compassion and his help on Zion. That's a way of referring to God's beloved people, the church. And so the psalmist, for all of his despair, he knows that God has promised to rescue and protect his people. He knows that God cannot and will not abandon her to her suffering, even though she, of course, deserves it. And so he reminds God about what time it is. It's like he's pointing at his watch to speak very anachronistically. He says, God, it is time to show us grace. It is time to do something. It's time to show us mercy. And so in verse 14, I love this, he reminds God that even we miserable, suffering sinners down here, even we are cherishing Zion's stones and dust. It's written in the context of the Babylonian exile when Israel was taken far away from home as punishment for their rebellion against God, the glorious Jerusalem temple was totally destroyed, leveled to nothing, reduced down to rocks and dirt. And so the psalmist is saying, me and the other people like me, we even love the ruins as much as they remind us of how bad things are, of how far we've fallen from what we once were and what we should have been. Today, we should mourn the failures and the weaknesses of the church around the world. We should cherish Jesus' beloved people, even in all of our weakness and humiliation. It's kind of trendy now, even for Christians to be too good for the church, to look down on it, to talk about reinventing it, or moving beyond it. But this psalm shows us that we should love the church, even, but especially, when it's struggling. God certainly does. That's why the psalmist is appealing to him over all of this. That's why he's turning to God for help. In verse 15, he reminds himself of the future glory of God's people and of God's plans for us. He reminds himself, he reminds us of where the church is headed, even though it looks really pathetic right now. He says, nations will fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth will fear your glory. God is working to draw all peoples to himself all over the planet. There are many, many Christians all over the world, lots and lots of them in Africa and Asia and Latin America. They are joyful in Jesus. They are eager to suffer for him. God's working all over the world. One day, all the nations, even their rulers, are going to be gathered together around his throne to praise him and thank him. Jesus promised that he will build his church and that the gates of hell would never ever win out against it. When he says that, he uses a a phrase in Greek that one of my teachers used to say means, no way, Jose. The gates of hell will no way, Jose, prevail against it. Verse 16, the psalmist says, The Lord builds up Zion. He appears in His glory. He's not abandoned us. He never will. Indeed, the precious verse 17. All of us should burn this onto our minds and our hearts. He regards the prayer of the destitute. He does not despise their prayer. He regards the prayer of the destitute. He does not despise their prayer. It does not say he regards the prayer of the pious and the put-together and the well-polished and the straight-laced. No. He says, oh, here is somebody who is destitute. Literally, in Hebrew, it says somebody who's naked. God does not despise your prayer in all of your weakness and suffering. Some of us think that our weakness and our sin and our failure means that God is somehow less interested, means that God is somehow disgusted with our prayers, But here you see that our failures and our struggles actually cause God to move towards us in compassion. And so, because of this, we should call out to him like needy, dependent children. He loves to help us. In verse 18, the miserable psalmist now dictates a solemn message for the future. It's something like a literary time capsule. He says, Let this be recorded for a generation yet to be created so that a people yet to be made may praise the Lord. And so it's like he's saying to you and me, he says, hey you, Christ the King, Presbyterian Church, Austin, Texas, 2022, I have something that I want you to hear so that you will learn to praise God in the midst of your suffering and misery just like I have. And so our ears should perk up. He's writing for us. He says, I want you to remember that God has looked down from his holy height. He's looked down to hear the groans of the prisoners and to set free those who were doomed to die, that they might declare in Zion the name of the Lord and in Jerusalem his praise when peoples and kingdoms gather together to worship the Lord. And so this is a whole bunch of language all crammed together in a couple of verses that's all echoing the way that the Bible talks about Israel's original exodus out of Egyptian slavery. God looked down from his heights, he heard the groans of his suffering people, and then he set them free so that they could go out into the wilderness to worship him and know him. And so now, about a thousand years later, the psalmist, in the midst of deep humiliation and defeat and despair, he's confident that God's going to do it again. He's so confident that he says, I'm even going to teach future generations to sing about it, like it's already happened. He's looking forward to a second exodus, one even better than the first one. Now when Jesus came, Jesus repeatedly and clearly framed his identity and his work in terms of this second exodus. He came to deliver his people from slave masters even worse than Pharaoh, from their sin and their deaths and the devil from the misery of this world. This work of the second exodus began in earnest with Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, but it's going to be consummated one day. It's going to be finished when he comes back to judge and renew the entire cosmos. So we can look back on so much more than this psalmist could. We've we've had so many things that have happened for us in the rearview mirror. We have the resurrection of Jesus, best of all. But like him, we're still looking forward in hope. We're still waiting for God to finish this work. So why can and should we be so hopeful even in the midst of so much suffering? It's because of who God is. Because of his character. That's how the psalm ends. That's where it really wants to drive us. In verse 23, he, re- re- he repeats this lament about his terrible suffering and humiliation. He says, God's broken my strength in mid-course. He's shortened my days. The idea is that he's, he's going along on some journey or on a race and right in the middle of it, God knocks him down. Right when things should have been going well, right when there was so much more, right when things could have worked out so much better. And so he says, I've cried out to God, don't sweep me away in the midst of my days. Don't cut me off. Don't cut us off so early. Now why can he say this? Why should he say this? Why can we say this? He says it's because God never changes. It's the focus of the last couple verses. He says, God, you're the one whose years endure throughout all generations. God is the one who created everything in the universe. Have you guys seen this new telescope? Some of these pictures they're sending back of all these galaxies. It's amazing. Those galaxies and those planets and those stars and those black holes have been around a long time. Compared to our puny little lives, it may as well be forever. But the psalmist says in verse 26 that they're going to wear out just like your running socks. God's going to get rid of them. They're going to fade away when God decides to do something different with them. He says, but God, unlike the galaxies, you have always been what you always will be. God never, ever changes. He's eternal. The psalmist says you will remain you are the same, and your years have no end. And so God's unchanging character is the root of the psalmists and our own hope in the midst of our misery. And so even though we are fleeting sinners who deserve God's judgment, it's actually good news that God never changes. That might sound like bad news at first, if you hear that we're under his judgment and he never changes. What's so good about that? But the psalmist is ending in hope. He's saying, this is good news that God never changes. Why? It's good news because God has promised to help and rescue anybody who puts their hope in Him, and particularly in His Son, Jesus. God has made what we call a covenant. It's a set of promises to deliver His needy and sinful people from sin and death and suffering. And so because God has committed Himself to these promises, He cannot not keep them to do so would be to deny himself to do so would be for him to become a liar the letter to the hebrews says that when god made his promises to rescue us through jesus god swore an oath and he had nothing higher than himself to swear by so he swears with his own name he swears by his own character that letter says that god did this to show us the unchangeable character of his purpose because it's impossible for God to lie. The author goes on in Hebrews to say that God has appointed Jesus as our high priest forever. He's always going to be our high priest, always ready and able to help us and to watch out for us in all of our suffering and failure and weakness. Back in the psalm, at the very end, verse 28, he expresses this great security and this confidence that we can have because of God's eternal character. He says, the children of your servants will dwell secure. Their offspring will be established before you. You hear that language of stability, something that lasts. And so whatever suffering you or the church might be facing today, we all need to know this. If we put our hope in Jesus, God can't not rescue you. God can't not care for you. God can't not provide for you even though, yes, of course, you are a sinner. You do not deserve it. You continue to show that you don't deserve it. God can and must rescue his needy people. He's promised, and he never changes. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your unchanging character that you have always been what you always will be that you cannot learn anything there's never anything that's new to you nothing and anything that ever surprises you we thank you that you are the stable foundation in the midst of a world of change teach us to grieve and lament our own sin and suffering our own misery help us to come to you not to be uh, too good or or too uh, practical down to earth to come to you and express our concerns to you our complaints to you. But at the same time, Father, we ask that you would help us to ground ourselves in you. Give us real hope in the midst of suffering so that we might endure. And as we endure, we might become more like Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.